This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Anyways, if we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Benji, and please uh, come, come and say hi after service. We'd love just to get to know you here. Uh, we are going to spend the next uh, 30 or so minutes uh, diving into this book. We believe this book changes lives, changed mine. And uh, we believe that in, this, in these scriptures that we continue get to get to know who God is, who we are, and how we get to live this life to the full that Jesus promised us. And so we're going to be doing that. We are in the second week of a series of conversations. We're called Living for the Weekend. And we're kind of using it as a play on words that we live in a world that lives for the weekend, right? You, you do the grind, you go, you hustle, and you go to your job in hopes that someday you're going to be out 5 o'clock on Friday to go live your real life. Right, and everything's geared towards this weekend. Well, Jesus actually had this same sort of principle, but it wasn't the the 40-hour work week. No, 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 he was living for one weekend, and that weekend is coming up on April 1st, the weekend of his death and resurrection. It says that is why he came. Everything in his life was geared towards and postured towards this one event. It says, like I said, it says this is why I came to, to, for, the, for the death, for dying, to laying down my life as a ransom for many, and then to be resurrected again. And so we are going to be looking at, rather than the whole life of Jesus, just the last week of Jesus. And the reason we're going to be doing this for clues about the weekend and the purpose of why Jesus lived is because the gospel writers, right, the, the, the writers who wrote about the biography of Jesus were people who spent most of their time writing about Jesus' last week. And so that should be a clue to us that there were things in Jesus' last week that were really significant. So last week we talked about uh, as Jesus is traveling from his hometown in Nazareth south towards Jerusalem, he stops through Jericho and he heals this blind beggar named Bartimaeus and has this miraculous encounter with him. Uh, and then at, at what we're doing tonight is he travels into this town right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just three miles north of Jerusalem called Bethany, and he has this dinner party where we see Jesus give us some insight and some clues of some things he's really passionate about. But what's funny about uh, things that we're passionate about is oftentimes we can figure out what we're passionate about by what makes us angry. Ever realize that? The things that make us angry are often the things that we are deeply significant to us, for, for better or for worse. Uh, how many of you guys uh, have a pet peeve or two? Right, the thing that it probably shouldn't make you that mad, but man, every time that person does it, it just irks you. And, and what it actually is showing is something inside of you that like, I really care about this. And maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should, right? I had a couple of these. I remember for, for years, I didn't know I was doing this. When I'd eat my food, I would... I'd bite my teeth on my fork and scrape it out. Anyone else? Uh, and generally, she's like, stop. I'm like, stop what? And she's like, you're doing that grind thing with the fork. I'm like, what grind thing? What are you talking about? And she had to like, show me. It's like, you do this all the time. Like, just quit it. I'm like, oh, okay. And then an even more embarrassing one, when we'd feed our children as they were infants, when I would stick out the spoon, I don't know why I would do this, but I would stick out my tongue. I'd go, hmm. And she's like, why do you do that? I'm like, why do I do what? She's like, you stick your tongue out when you feed our kids. I'm like, no, I don't. And I, I literally thought she was lying to me. And literally one day she sticks her phone up above the table and snaps a picture of me doing it. And she shows me. And I'm like, oh, gosh, what? I do that? And, uh, and it's true. Like, so this day I have this phobia, this deep phobia that like, as I'm eating, I'm like, sticking out my tongue in strange moments because I had no idea I was doing it. 
And oftentimes the things we get angry about are, are selfish and petty and they shouldn't make us angry. But then there are those moments that the things that make us angry are what the Bible calls righteous anger. The things that actually reveal a deep need in our heart for justice, a deep need in our heart for, for the oppressed to be liberated. There's things that just you watch on the news, or you hear a story, and you're like, that's not right. And it actually evokes anger in you. I remember the first time this happened in my life. I was in like fourth or fifth grade. I'm on the playground. Um, I'm the second smallest kid in my class next to Austin. And Austin was not only short, but he's really cute and round and had these bottle, you know, uh, that kind of glasses and stuff I got. It was just kind of looked like a mole. Anyways, so Austin, Austin was in our class, and I look across the playground, and this like sixth grader, because our elementary school went to sixth grade, was literally pushing him against the fence. There was a chain link, and he's literally bouncing back and forth, right? And like, and Austin's like, stop, stop. And this guy's doing it. I'm looking across the playground, and there's something that came over me that's like, this is not right. And I'm watching Austin just get, like, get pushed back and forth. And so I don't know what came over me. I start running at him, like running at this bully. And as I'm running, I remember literally thinking, like, what am I going to do, right? I'm the teeniest guy, and I'm, like, two years younger than this dude. And as I'm running, Austin's glasses literally fall off his face onto the ground. And this guy is literally about to stomp on him. It's like a movie scene, right? He's like, ha, ha, ha. He's about to crush Austin's glasses. And I kid you not, it was like the Holy Spirit came over me. And I ran, and it was like Brad Pitt in the movie Troy just jumped in the air, like slow motion, boom, and just knocked this kid in the face. And the, the bully in the face, not Austin, and knocked the bully in the face. He spun around, and he's just dazed. And I, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and I just, like, run as fast as I can to go find, like, the recess duty. And, like, to like, save my life, please. And, and I was literally, and I was, I was, like, breathing heavy, and I was like, man, what was that? And there's something in my heart that I was so angry that there was an injustice happening. And what's so interesting is that, Jesus, although he was fully God, was also fully man. And there are a few times in Scripture that actually record Jesus being angry. And I believe because Jesus didn't sin, it was all righteous anger. So what we can learn from tonight is if we look at what was making Jesus frustrated and angry enough that he would begin to act out physically... And that it could actually give us a clue, an insight to something Jesus was really passionate about. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight. And so uh, in order for us to dive into this, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in John chapter 12, if you have a Bible. And if you don't have one, bring one with you. Um, you can always download an app, but it's always something amazing having this. And the reason we say to bring one with you is you should not be listening to everything I say without first looking at the Word of God and making sure it's true, okay? I'm a human being, and I study this a lot. I spend hours every week preparing. But I also uh, believe that you don't need a pastor to teach you God's heart. He's given you scriptures. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And this is an opportunity every week as you read. You're not fact-checking me, but you are making sure that this, the messages you're hearing from me or a podcast or anyone else is in line with the word of God. And so tonight we're going to be in John chapter 12, which is this moment, the moment before Jesus enters into, the night before he enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, right, the palm branches, the whole thing. He is at this dinner. And before we dive into the exact passage, let's just talk a little bit about context here, because there's some characters at this dinner that it's helpful for us to know. There is Lazarus. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead the chapter before this. 
kind of a big deal. Matter of fact, he's, it's such a big deal that it says that everyone, he's become famous, right? He's insta-famous now. His followers are off the, off the charts. And everyone's following Lazarus now. Like, dude, you got raised from the dead, and everyone's starting to follow Jesus. Well, Lazarus has two sisters. He has uh, Mary and Martha, uh, who are also kind of famous throughout Scripture for different reasons. Uh, just as a side note, this Mary is not Mary Magdalene. She was not a prostitute. She was, um, as far as what we know, is seemed to be a close friend of Jesus and a follower of her. But this is kind of that Mary. And then there's the guy who's throwing the party, who we find out in another gospel is this guy named Simon, and, of course, Jesus. So these are the characters that are taking, that we find out about, about this story. But if we go back, we learn a little bit about them. And so if you look at Luke chapter 10, this is the first introduction we have to, um, to Mary and Martha. This famous story and peculiar story at the very end of Luke chapter 10. And Jesus is, is at this dinner party and Martha is doing what every single Palestinian woman would have been doing, and that is preparing and serving the meal. And, and again, let's turn off your 21st century lens for a second. This was not a degrading thing as much as it was just a social norm for them. And if you were living back then, this would have been the natural thing for you to be doing. And so they're having this dinner, and Mary, her little sister, decides to leave her post and gets to go and sit at the feet of Jesus. And if you're Martha, you are furious, right? Like, this cannot be happening. Are you serious? You're sitting at the feet of Jesus? By the way, that was reserved for the students of a rabbi, and that was only could be taken by a male. So here comes Mary, and she has the audacity to leave her sister and then to take the position of one of the male disciples at his feet. And so obviously Martha comes storming in saying, what is going on? And starts ranting and raving like, rebuke her, send her back to the kitchen with me. This isn't fair. And Jesus does something that shocks everyone. He says, Martha, Martha, which I believe he's not stuttering. He's probably, it's a Hebrew way of shouting when you put two words together. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's not saying it twice. He's just saying truly, like, listen up. So when he says Martha, Martha, he's probably saying, whoa, Martha, chill. And he's saying, and he goes on and says, he says this, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is our introduction to these characters. Mary, right, the, the, the sitting, submissive, loving, intimate relationship with Jesus, and, her, and Martha, the, the type A structured server, has everything together, which, why, by the way, she was doing nothing wrong. This is our introduction. Well, in John's gospel, we've, we catch up with these characters uh, months, maybe years later, when it says Jesus, one of his greatest friends, this guy named Lazarus, and Lazarus passes away while Jesus is in a town uh, within walking distance. And so they go and tell him, like, your friend is dying. And Jesus does something that shocks them again, and he doesn't come. And he waits three days, and when he shows up, Lazarus has now been dead for three days. And so you can imagine Martha and Mary, who are close with Jesus, are furious, and they run. And Martha runs at Jesus and says, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And it's true. And Jesus corrects her. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
and just gives her clarity right there in that moment of deep grief and anger. And then Mary runs up maybe a couple minutes later and says the exact same thing. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. But he doesn't correct her. He doesn't give her clarity. He doesn't respond to her the way he responds to Martha. It says he just, Jesus wept. Wept with her. Which has always been so shocking to me because I'm just thinking you're about to raise him from the dead. What would provoke you to weep with someone who you'd know that the outcome is not what she thinks it is? And guys, just, just pause right here. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing God that doesn't sit back at our pain and our sorrow and our grief with his hands. It's like, guys, stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop hurting. It's going to be fine. No, 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 no. Even though he knows the end, even though he knows the restoration, he enters into our pain and weeps with us. It's so incredibly profound. So then obviously we see Jesus moments later raise Lazarus from the dead. He comes forth from the tomb, tells him to unwrap him. And this is where we leave off these characters that we're about to see again in John chapter 12. But real briefly, before we dive into the actual text, because we're not going to do a sermon on the triumphal entry, I want to just bring clarity that after this dinner party we're about to read about, Jesus, the next day, enters into Jerusalem in a very, very specific way. And the reason why he did this was for two reasons. One, he was fulfilling all of the messianic prophecies, the dozens of messianic prophecies, of this is how the Messiah is going to enter in to bring about his new kingdom that will never come to an end, overthrow the current kingdom. And so as he enters in the next day on this donkey, everyone knows this is, this is the Messiah, the promised one. And the second reason he did this was to mock Rome. Because in, in Roman days, when you would conquer a city, they would get the biggest horse they could get, and it would march and ride to the middle of the city, and then here comes Jesus on like a donkey. <laughs> and everyone's just like, what? All the Romans are like, what? And all the Jews are like, whoa! This is amazing. So he's very strategic as he goes in, but what he does is Amazing. This is the moment where we see Jesus get angry, and we see it not happen just right here, but it actually happened at the beginning of his ministry, reading John chapter 2, where he goes into the temple, and he begins to wreak havoc. In John's account in chapter 2, he literally says he makes a whip. That's the first time. How angry do you have to be to make your own whip, right? That's like the next level of the wooden spoon, and so he, he does that, and then this time he marches into the city. It says he's grieved, he weeps over Jerusalem. He goes in and in Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 15, it says this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changer and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Can you imagine just Jesus, like, like just literally physically stopping people from carrying merchandise through the courts? And it says, as he taught them, he said this, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So here, again, precursor, those are the characters. But what's about to happen is Jesus, I believe, wasn't just mad in that moment, like he just flipped. I believe that there was this thing in Jesus that was getting angrier and angrier and angrier in his building. And it's, it's not sinful. But there was this thing inside of him that was just growing in anger to the point where he says, this has to change. And we see that at this dinner party. You can see he's kind of on edge. 
But in this moment, he's so angry, and here's why he's angry. Because the temple courts were the place to worship, to come and to encounter the presence of God. And what they were doing is they had taken the laws that God had set up and they began to add laws to them and this, this, these layers to them and to keep Gentiles out. They, they make money on them. And keep in mind, they're, they're an oppressed people. They don't, they're, they're, this, is their, this is their White House. This is their national pride, their temple. But they've made it so hard for anyone who's not a Jewish male to worship God, that Jesus is observing this, and he's furious. says, this should have been a house of prayer for all nations, and you've turned it into a den of robbers. What happened? This is not what my presence was ever supposed to be about. And that anger reveals this passion, this purpose that he had, which I believe can be summed to this, that we serve a God whose great, great desire that has been since the garden is to have deep, real, intimate relationship with his people. It's always been his desire. And when that has been corrupted, whether it's been the Jewish rulers 2,000 years ago, whether it's been the church today, and anyone in between, whenever people get in the way of people encountering the presence of God, there's something that is terribly upsetting God because he desires so much to be in relationship with his people. So let's keep that in mind as we read this text. So John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given to Jesus in Jesus' honor. Martha served, surprise, surprise, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Listen to Jesus' response right here. Leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Let's stop right there. So here we have this moment. Let's use our imaginations right there. Let's, let's like, uh, uh, my friend says, smell the text, right? Like, let's enter into this story where Jesus is coming in to this town moments before he enters Jerusalem for Holy Week, for Passover week. And as he's doing that, the crowds are building, not just following Jesus, but Lazarus has become famous as well. And so they invite them, and Simon, uh, this wealthy man in Bethany, has his party to honor these two people. And as he does, 
the way that houses worked back then is that the dining room was actually a place where people could watch from the outside in. So there'd be these massive openings, windows without glass, where the city could come and watch who's having dinner. And so in Jewish society, the table was a central social gathering place. And so here is this, with maybe the two most famous people in that day, are having a dinner together. And Simon's hosting this party, and everyone's watching, everyone's there. And we find that Martha is doing what she does best. Here she is in the kitchen again, serving up an amazing lamb stew, probably. And and so as this is going on, this is the image of what we get here. Back then, the table was not how we would understand a rectangle table. It was more like a U-shape. And the reason it was a U is the server would come into the middle and serve uh, the different people laying there. But they wouldn't be sitting in chairs. It would be actually closer to kind of ground level. They'd maybe be on a cushion of some sort. But they would be laying out with their feet away from the table. And so you can imagine, let's say there's 15, 20, 30 people at this massive U-shaped table, and all of their heads are near the table with their feet all shooting out from that edge, and they're around this place, and everyone is crowded, and everyone's trying to watch, and there's, and there's conversation going on, it's loud, and it's noisy, and here's Mary, and this is what's interesting about Mary, is she, she's not, she, she's not Mary the Mary Magdalene, she's not a prostitute, but here's a woman, and we know a couple things about her. One, she had this very obscure, intimate relationship with Jesus that any woman that day would never dream to have, but she knew him and loved him. And, and not only that, but she had just literally raised her brother from the dead. And so you can imagine that as this dinner's going on, Mary's just like, man, I, I have to thank him somehow. I have to show him my heart. There has to be somewhere where I can actually display the kind of just absolute thankfulness and gratitude that I can have for my Savior. And, and here she is, this moment. And this is the, my imagination. I'm reading this a little bit. But she has this moment. She's like, I have this perfume. I have this, and it's called, called Nard. And when I just, I literally just found out from a friend of mine, it still exists. It's from Nepal. And you can still get it, but it just became an extinct plant last year. It is impossible to buy anymore. It has always been an expensive perfume. And she has some that has literally been taken from this plant. It's used for burials. And she has it. Maybe this perfume was actually purchased for her brother's death. And she thinks in that moment, this is, I I didn't have to use this for my brother, so I'm going to use it on Jesus. Because he rescued my brother and, and, and deleted the need I even had to do this, I'm just going to pour it on him. I'm going to give him everything I have. So here comes Mary fighting through the crowds, and she does something so audacious and scandalous. She comes to the very feet of Jesus that she was familiar with, but she breaks his ointment, pours it out on his feet, and begins to start wiping it with her hair. And as she wipes the dirt with her hair, you can imagine dirt and mud getting tangled up in her hair. And it says that the, the, the smell filled the house. And everyone is watching this. And here's Jesus at another dinner party. And they're just like, what is happening now? What is going on? What is Mary doing in this moment? And so Judas and the other gospels actually say other disciples as well. It wasn't just him. Just literally like, whoa, what are you doing? You could have sold that and given that to the poor. It's worth 300 denarii, which is the, uh, 300 days worth of wages. So I kind of nerded out. I'm like, well, what would that be in today's money for a San Diego average income? 
It turns out that that amount of money is, turns out to be $52,109.59. She's got a $52,000 bottle of perfume. And he takes it out and breaks it over his feet, starts washing his feet with her hair, with his ointment. And then everyone knows exactly what that is. Like, what are you doing? You know how precious and expensive that thing is. And then Jesus' response, once again, is amazing. He doesn't say, you're right, this is a little odd. Or we could have used that for better, for better purposes. He just says, leave her alone. He protects this woman who would have not been protected by anyone in that day. Because she was doing something that was so beautiful, so uh, pure, and so authentic from this place of, I just need to worship you and thank you. But Jesus would just say, leave her alone. And as I look at this passage, there's three things I really want to focus on. One is the intimacy that Mary had with Jesus. How did she have this, this relational intimacy with this rabbi? How did she, how did she do that? What is, why was that so obscure? The second thing I want to look at is the sacrifice of Mary. And the third thing is the sacrifice of Jesus. So as we look at the intimacy of Mary, there, there's something that we need to point out. That in that day, the reason Jesus got angry at the dinner party, the reason Jesus got angry at flipping the tables, the reason Jesus got angry and made a whip a couple years before, always comes back to this point where the religious order of the day, this religious piety, was was removing people's ability, specifically non-Jewish people or even women, to be able to encounter that presence of God. And Jesus just absolutely attacks it. So we have this religious piety in that day. The second thing we have is social norms, right? It is hard if you're a woman to have any. You couldn't enter into certain levels of the Holy of Holies. You, you couldn't have access to, to, to rabbis, right? It was class systems. If you were poor, you had different things that you couldn't do. And, and then lastly, there's just this pervasive selfishness that's not constrained to a, a, certain, uh, a certain time or age. It's just prevalent in human nature, right? There's something of a selfishness of the religious rulers of the day, a selfishness of Jesus' own disciples that would prevent people from entering into relationship with him. All the time, his disciples are trying to keep people away because they wanted to be the few that were close to him. But this is what it's amazing. Religious piety, social norms, and selfishness were not something just of the first century. There's something that are still relevant in the 21st century. Why we still have a problem, even within the church, even within Christ's beautiful bride, of these norms we've created that have actually hindered people from just coming in and experiencing the presence of God. Whether that's, whether that's over-religiosity or Christianese or, 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 or having different things, if you have to act this way or morality or you have to dress this way, that actually creates these layers that Jesus says, no, 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 no. I actually entered in to the people who were absolutely outcasted by the religious rulers of the day, and they were the ones I drew close. We have, these, we have these social norms that back then would have been looked very different, but our social norms look like things like performance, right? They're things like individualism. They look like things that, that are just normal things, just busyness. 
that rob us from an intimate relationship with Jesus that Mary obviously had. And I was looking at my own life this week, I'm like, what robs me from having an intimate relationship with Jesus? And here are some of the things. My greatest one was just busyness. I'm so busy planting a church that I'm not spending time with the creator of that church. I don't know about you, but I, if I'm, as a pastor, it's hard for me to find time with Jesus. I can only imagine how easy it is for us to become so busy that we lose sight of that. Uh, maybe for you, it's performance-based. Maybe your entire life is built and built around a system that if you do these certain things, then you get rewarded, and somehow that has seeped into your spirituality. So you feel like because you doubt, because you have sins that you've participated in, because there are things in your life you're ashamed of that you have a hard time stepping foot into church because there's something in you that feels wrong or dirty or guilty or heavy or condemned. And I just want to say that's not biblical. It's, it's the performancism of today that has seeped into our spirituality that says a narrative, you have to perform a certain way to belong in church. Can I tell you, church, according to Jesus, should be a place filled with the most sketchy people you should ever see. If, it, if Jesus was the pastor of a local church, you know who would be attending that church? People I probably wouldn't want my kids to like be around. But for him, it was just normal. But we've somehow created this, this really, and I believe, unhealthy and sometimes even just, just sick kind of things. And, and it's never, I don't think it's people's intention. I don't think it's pastor's intentions. But I think if we're not aware of these layers we've put for people to encounter the presence of God, we're going to just continue to go down the spiral. And Jesus, once again, is going to be like, this has to be flipped. We have to get people to have a, an ability to come into the presence of God. So we have these layers, right, that are blocking us from this intimate relationship with God. But this is so huge because before we can start talking about the sacrifice that Mary gave, right, the extravagant love that she poured out, we have to understand that this was not done because someone twisted her arm, because someone told her to do it. It was purely out of this intimate relationship with God. And, and, I, and, and I get it because, because authentic intimacy always precedes extravagant sacrifice. I'm just going to say it again. Authentic intimacy always precedes extravagant sacrifice. And just to prove this, I remember when I started dating Jen, right? And I knew very early on I wanted to marry this girl. But I knew if I was going to marry her that there were sacrifices that had to be made. But can I tell you, never once did I put a pros and cons list together. Never once it was like, this is going to cost me a few thousand bucks. I'm going to have to talk to her dad. You know, I'm going to not be able to play basketball as much, probably. I mean, it didn't even cross my mind. I'm like, whatever, whatever I have to do for her to become my bride, I will do it. I flew to Alabama, right? Lost my luggage. The airline lost my luggage, so I had to go pick up oversized shirts from Walmart, and I didn't have stuff in my hair, so I had this, like, white afro, oversized clothes, and I'm 20 years old, and I'm a janitor, and I'm sitting in the car with Jen's dad, and I'm like, here's my moment. I'm going to ask his permission, shining just moment of glory. I'm like, Mr. Barker, I'm so scared and so nervous. I'm just like, I would like to ask your permission for your daughter's hand in marriage. And he just s sits there, doesn't look at me. So I'm like, 
the plan. So I start telling him the plan. And I'm like, I'm like, don't, don't worry, Chaplain Barker. I'm a janitor. So I'm really gonna take great good care of your daughter. Um, and just go on to like just lay out my plan. I'm like, this is how we're gonna make it work. And again, I, I don't even realize how much of a kid I am. And I'm just laying this out and he's just, just driving, just stone-faced, no emotion, doesn't even blink. And I'm just looking at him like, dear God, just move or something. And he doesn't, like one minute goes by, two minutes go by, five minutes go by, and nothing. And I'm literally about to ask him again. And he finally speaks up and he's like, well, it's like, I can't pretend to know you, but I know my daughter. And if she says yes, I'll say yes. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, I thought I was going to die. And then I go back and I'm like, okay, I got permission. I'm going to start, I got to start saving up for a ring. So I got like my minimum wage checks in and I just put that thing in the bank and put it in the bank. And for months, I just saved every single penny that I could at my bare minimum salary. And then I saved up to a few thousand dollars and I went to the store, paid for the biggest purchase I'd ever paid for my entire life. And never once was I like, man, this really hurts. Never once was I like, man, this is such a sacrifice, ever. It was purely out of this place of I love this girl and I want to do whatever I can to her, for her to know it, for me to prove my love for her. There was never this place of like, ah, oh, I guess I should probably buy her a ring or else she's going to be complaining. Gosh, who, how sick of it. Can I, but can I tell you? I was driving and I was just thinking about when's the last time where I really had to sacrifice for God? That you, let me phrase that. When's the last time I, was, I got to sacrifice for God? Like really. Like from a place of pure joy. Lord, it's all yours. And what it did, it didn't make me start thinking of the sacrifice. It started getting me thinking about the intimacy. Jesus, I need to get back to a place where I'm so in love with you that, that a sacrifice would just be easy. Whatever you want, God, whatever you need. Because Mary shows up on the scene, and whatever it was, he doesn't give his detail. Mary had that in her heart. She came into that room and she, and she found his feet and she's like, okay, what can I use to dry it? And so she lets down her hair. By the way, in that culture, you never let down your hair unless you were a prostitute. So she immediately humbles herself by putting down her hair, takes this $52,000 piece of perfume, spills it on his feet while all the eyes of humiliation are on her and starts to rub the dirt off of Jesus' feet. And as she's doing it, it's collecting in her own hair and it doesn't even matter for her and as she just lays this staggering sacrifice at his feet there's all that she wants to do is just I want you to know that I love you and Jesus just protects her in it I love Matthew Matthew's account of the gospel of, the, of this story I'm sorry says this Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How amazing. And Jesus literally says, wherever the gospel is preached around the world, her story is going to be told. This sacrifice will be told about. And here we are in 2018 in Encinitas, California, on the other side of the world, talking about Mary of Bethany. 
And the sacrifice she gave that was birthed from a place of pure intimacy that she had with, with her Savior, with Jesus. And so I'm driving in the car, and I'm literally, like, disturbed. Because it's like, Lord, is that, do I, I'm about to preach this message, but is that in me? Really? And, and I know people who are like, well, you planted a church, you did this, but Lord, it, am I really in a place where I would just give you anything? And it wouldn't, and it wouldn't hurt. That's the thing. And I began to evaluate this place, and I was, and I was just honestly, like, I was scared, I was humbled. And, it be, and the Holy Spirit begins to speak to me. Ryan, if you can come up and just start playing. And as I'm driving, I literally hear God just begin to start saying, her sacrifice, as extravagant as it was, pales in comparison to the sacrifice I gave for you. Oh, man. I'm listening to this song, Grace to Grace, and I'm listening to the words, and all of a sudden, it starts becoming very clear that just as, just as Mary had to let, had to leave her social post of where she should have been to go into that very scary place of, of being at the feet of Jesus, Jesus had to leave his heavenly divine post to enter into that place of being a human being. And just in the same way that Mary would have to let down her hair in that great posture and picture of humility, Jesus didn't let down his hair. He let down his crown. And as Mary would go and he began to wash the dirt off of the feet of Jesus, Jesus said, listen, I came and I washed the sin away from your soul. And just as Mary collected the dirt in her own hair, Jesus says, I literally became sin for you. I bore your shame. I took on your curse. I took on the punishment that you deserved. I bore it together. And as I'm driving, I'm literally weeping as Jesus says, she gave $52,000, which we talk about thousands of years later, but I gave my son for you. I gave everything for you. And it wasn't Mary giving it to Jesus because, man, Jesus is worth it, right? He's so worth it. He's perfect, and he loved her, and he's the amazing sacrifice of God. But God gave an even bigger sacrifice for someone as sick and sinful as me, someone as broken as you. He would look at us, and he would just say, you think that sacrifice is amazing? Check out the one I gave you that you didn't earn, that shouldn't have been given to you. And I'm just in that moment, I'm just lost it. I'm just like, God. I could never, ever repay you for what you've done for me. And there's this simple moment as I'm sitting in stupid traffic on the 805. I'm literally like weeping and like people are like looking over at me like, oh my gosh, is this guy okay? But I'm just like, man, God, how can I not? How can I not live a life fully given to you when you gave your life fully for me? How can I not know the intimacy of Christ when you came the entire distance and I didn't have to move an inch 
and, and, and I have to be honest, I don't, it's not like God told me to go and, you know, sell my house or do these things. But in that moment, it was a simple prayer. Jesus, whatever you want is yours. It all belongs to you. And my whole life be spent at your feet, giving everything I have for you. Because you're so worth it. You're so worth it. I'm going to ask Ryan to sing this song again. And as he does, I'm, I'm just going to ask you just to stop and let these words, but more importantly, just the reality of these words, just minister to your heart. And if you need to get on your knees or lay on your face or stand and lift your hands, whatever you need to do, sit down, whatever it is, would you posture yourself in such a way that would just say, God, I want to receive your love, would I kindle true intimacy with you, which would turn into a lifestyle of sacrifice for you. So let's just take a minute and let's just encounter the love of God.